Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within, and like the phoenix, enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest is Kim Tai, a writer, producer, and activist hailing from Texas, now living in New York City. Kim recounts how a painful divorce from her high school sweetheart forced her to confront her own understanding and acceptance of her true self, all of it leading her to redefine and recreate her new life. Please welcome Kim Tai. So welcome, Kim. I ask one question and to start the conversation. And the question I ask everyone is, was there an event in your life, personal or professional, that was challenging that might have redirected the course of your life? Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because I think there's been so many big pivotal points like that. But I think the biggest one was personally when I went through my divorce and my world got flipped upside down. And that's when I really started finding yoga and practicing with you and, you know, among many other teachers and just really carving a new path and understanding of, of everything after that. So can you go back to that period when you were going through your divorce? Was it unexpected? It wasn't unexpected. I think for me, it was more of a long awaited realization. And it was really a practice of letting go. I think often, sometimes you're trying to make things work in relationships. And and, and it takes a lot of fortitude to be like, hey, this isn't working for whatever reason. And ultimately, stepping away, right? And going through that heartbreak. And I always say like, my heart broke, but it broke open. And that with that came a lot of learning for me. But you were fairly young when this happened, right? It was right um, before my 30th birthday. So it was like my Saturn return time. And were you college sweethearts or how long were you married? How long were you together? Yeah, we were high school sweethearts. We were together um, for 12 years, married for a year and a half. Wow. So I know that my husband and I met when we were fairly young. And Mm. when I think about us ever separating, it's hard to think about kind of extrapolating myself from the relationship because the relationship was such a part of my growing up and becoming an adult. How was that process for you? I would imagine from high school to almost 30 is a huge period in which you grow and change. Yeah, absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head there, Juliana, is like so much of our identities were wrapped up within each other too. Like even the simple act of like going through my social and figuring out like what pictures I wanted to keep there, right? Was like, oh my gosh, like this person has been such a huge part of my life and figuring out like, and like major events, like your wedding. You know, my best friends often say like I was experiencing a lot of growth that 
they experienced like in their early 20s because it was like I didn't have that sort of independence because I was with this person. And so it was a very interesting time for me in the next couple of years to be able to really kind of find myself and find the parts of, of me that still needed um to be woken up and to be discovered. And it was just like one thing after the other in that period of time. And I'm so grateful because I needed something really foundational. And that's where my yoga meditation practice came in and was so vital because, you know, I was heartbroken. And so being able to really use those tools in a therapeutic way was both life-saving and changing for me at the time. So yeah. And you started dating in high school. So how did you stay together during college years, which is also another period of like great finding one's identity and feeling a sense of independence? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I tend to be, uh, whenever I make a decision, I'm, I'm very much like, okay, this is it. And, <laughs> you know, when I met my ex early on, I was like, cool, I love you. We're together. We both had that sort of mindset that we were each other's person. And even though we went to school, we did long distance within Texas. And, you know, I moved to New York and and he was in Texas for a period of time and we did long distance there. And so it was hard. It feels like lifetimes ago, but we, we did it because we felt very committed to each other. And I think we always were, even to the very end, it was just kind of realizing we kind of grew into different people than we were than when we first met it. Do you keep in touch with him at all? I do not. <laughs> I wish him well. And, you know, it just feels like a chapter that closed for me and I think with the big sort of like events that happened in the past year between the pandemic and the big freeze in Texas, we of course checked in on each other and make sure we were all well in our families. But yeah, it was very much a, a final moment of closure for me once we split. And then I was like, okay, here's the rest of my life. And so what did that look like for you when you hit that moment of there's the rest of my life? I think it goes back to your question earlier of like really figuring out who I was outside of this person. And mm -hmm. so much of who I was also based in my career and in my production life and being a producer and really ask the, the question of like, well, who am I outside of work even, right? And I was kind of left not knowing the answer. So it was a lot of deep diving of getting reacquainted to the core of who I was. And I also think that's when I really started building a relationship to my queerness and coming out and figuring out like there was this whole other side of me too that I just hadn't had access because I was in love with this one particular person. So it was all kind of coming in at, at in all different directions, if that makes sense. So not only did you have a personal moment of reckoning because the relationship that you had been a part of for so long was ending, you also had a reckoning of your own sexual identity. What was that like? It was scary. <laughs> and also great. I think a lot of it too, when, you know, I have so many friends within the community growing up and kind of recognizing that sort of initial attraction 
to women. And I was just like, oh, well, is this a phase? Is this just all the questions that I think typically kind of happen when you're exploring your sexuality? And um, lucky in that I had such a great support system and my family was incredibly great. Like coming from an API background, like, you know, those type of conversations can be challenging. And I'm really lucky that my parents and my sister were so supportive in whatever endeavors I was trying to explore with my love life. When was the first inkling that you might have perhaps an attraction to women occur? If I'm really being honest with myself, Juliana, because I've thought about because <laughs> I've thought about this a lot, obviously. I had a crush on Scully in the X-Files when I was about 12 years old. And I remember being like, whoa, what's happening here? And then just kind of brushing it off. There were moments like that throughout my life. And it's interesting. I get the question a lot of like, well, do you think that, you know, you were just repressed? Do you think that's what came about of like the ending of your marriage, I can very definitely say that wasn't the case. I think this is where it gets really interesting in that my own exploration of my sexuality is also the sort of acceptance of understanding queerness and understanding you can be in this fluid and non-binary sort of state in your sexuality or for gender for some people in the community. And so I find it very fortunate because it's a lot of the similar teachings of yoga, like meeting people where they are, like understanding that there's not the sort of rigidness. So mm-hmm. it was very interesting to see that parallel both on the mat and off the mat in my love life, like these teachings showing me a new way of like, I didn't have to necessarily completely understand who or why I was attracted to someone and or have to identify, but it was more just me being open to it. And that was really the practice for me at that point. So it's interesting. So did you, have you ever thought back to attaching yourself to your ex-husband? Do you think on a subconscious level, was that you kind of hiding behind that relationship to avoid facing the real truth? Yeah, no, I don't think so, because I don't think it was any sense of hiding. I really loved this guy. And I think that's where a lot of the constructs of either being gay or being straight, you fall into those sort of trappings versus like being in this like middle gray area, which I very much like identify with. I remember I was very much trying to find the words when I was first exploring my sexuality and I got this tarot card reading and this woman was like you fall in love with souls not bodies and I was like that is it that's (laughs) that's like my explanation of my sexual identity and it wasn't until a few years later when I met my now partner when she identified as queer which has been really reclaimed by the community that I was like oh that's exactly what encompasses this identity for me is being in that sort of that middle. Could you ever envision being with a man again? Yeah, absolutely. So you are polymorphous. <laughs> sure. I mean, I like to use the word queer because I think there's something very empowering about having a word that is intentionally about not defining, right? And so well, can you can you define that for us? Because I know that the meaning of it has changed within the community. And I get that people reclaiming something that used to be 
viewed as derogatory to sort of take the power away from that. So can you give us a definition of what queer means now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, like you mentioned, like the term itself, and I just wrote a piece about this, actually. So I think that's why it's top of mind. But so often before it was a derogatory term to describe someone as quote unquote, not normal. And so in the past, like five years, the LGBTQIA plus community has really reclaimed that word and saying we're not. That's what's so great about it, too. And so it's really flipping the word on its head and making this idea of being different or being othered actually coming from a place of empowerment of not having to be defined. That's what that word means to me is I don't want to be put into a box. I don't like want to have to restrain my identity in any way, whether it's my sexual identity or my racial identity, my gender, whatever, in order to fit a system that may or may not be able to really let me express the the fullness of who I am. I think we can all kind of relate to that in some way, no matter how you identify that sometimes you're like, stop trying to put me in this box. To me, that's what the definition of queerness is. It's sort of like the construct to deconstruct all constructs. <laughs> right. Know? But it's also become political, right? People are, people in the community are using it sort of in a political sense. Yeah. I think they're, they've totally reclaimed it, if that's what you mean. Absolutely. In terms of using it as a state of empowerment. Right. So let's go back to, you made reference to the fact that you grew up in Texas. What was that like to grow up in a state as an Asian American? To be honest, it was really tough. So my parents are Vietnamese war refugees there, and we grew up in a Western suburb outside of Houston. And the population at the time, like I was probably the only API person in my high school. I was the only East Asian person in my high school. There was like maybe three other um, South Asian folks and then a few other people of color. But otherwise, it was a predominantly white environment. It was really, really challenging to be in that setting in a lot of ways that I think I didn't realize until I was much older of like how much I was trying to bend and mold myself to my surroundings, right? So it's so interesting because I'm going to say I'm a good 20 years older than you and I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And Mm. I think it wasn't until I was nearly finishing what we can now call middle school that I had an Asian student in the school with me. And that was many years ago. So I find it so interesting that your experience, even I would say what, 10, 15 years ago was of that sense of being the other and being the only other. Yeah, absolutely. I always tell this story. I remember in elementary school, they automatically placed me in ESL, (laughs) Juliana, because of my last name. I showed up in the class and I was like, hi, why am I here? (laughs) And I was like six, you know, and the teacher was like, I don't know. And I'm so sorry. I remember her being so sweet. It wasn't her decision, right? It was like some admin or principal. And, And it wound up being such an interesting memory for me because there was actually a girl in there who was Vietnamese who could not speak English. And I sort of became her translator for the rest of the afternoon (laughs) to help this little girl. But that's such a 
prime example of being tokenized and not really going beyond the surface. The thing that I find so interesting now is that I, I've gone back, obviously, to go visit my family. And there's like a whole Asian, like mm. little Asia now. Like, yeah. I, <laughs> it's wild. I'm not sure how it is in Philly. And if, you, if you've seen that sort of community growth too, but I was shocked the last time I went. I was like, where was this when I was growing up? This would have been really nice, you know? Yeah. I remember my father driving into New York to go to the Korean market on 32nd Street. Then some little market opened up in the suburbs right outside Philly. And now they have what's called Asi Market. It's an, an actual just big old supermarket that is full on mm. Korean in my parents' neighborhood. So yes, the world has certainly changed and the uh, migration patterns have changed. So when you go back to as somebody who grew up in that environment of being the only person of color in a lot of situations, I know Mm -hmm. that for a lot of us, we have this incredible capacity to be observers, right? It's like we are constantly observing as well as participating. How do you think that experience has informed you as an adult? In terms of observing my point of difference when I was growing up, is that what you mean? Yeah, but you know, it's it's that we're always kind of on guard, right? We're always watching because we understand that no matter how accepted we are, we are still different. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I think it's probably why I became a writer is that I had incredible observation skills, mm-hmm. listening skills. And, and then obviously imagination. So how do you think being the other and being the only other in a lot of situations and that sense of observation formed your personal choices, perhaps uh, professionally or personally? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's completely been the, the, the motivating factor of why I've chosen the career I have. I don't think I have become as, it wasn't until probably very recently, like at post-divorce that I kind of really recognized that. I've always been very, very drawn to like, I was a journalist for a while and specifically in Texas. And I always went out of my way to make sure we were like telling the only minority story or telling the story that no one else was paying attention to, even if my editor wasn't going to publish it. And I think somewhere deep down inside, that was because I I knew how that felt, be seen or be heard in some capacity. And I think that is just something that I've just carried throughout. When I was working in corporate for a really long time, I remember coming into one of my jobs and being one of two women in the whole room, one, the only person of color in the room. By the time I left, first of all, I was running that place. I remember getting really emotional my last week there because the room was like, filled. And I I only realized it because a a colleague of mine pointed it out where she was like, look at the impact you've made because it was suddenly filled with women, women of color, such a diverse group of folks. And, you know, seven years before that wasn't the case. So I think like both consciously and subconsciously, that's always been, I think, purpose and, and motivating factor to make sure everyone gets a seat at the table that don't normally have that opportunity afforded to them. So obviously this question may seem loaded, but have both your partners been people of color or not? No, they haven't actually. (laughs) So my, my ex was white and my current partner, she's white. She's Jewish. 
It's interesting that you asked that because I think particularly I've asked myself that question as well. And for me, it's been a really interesting dynamic being in two serious interracial couples that have been with white partners and different parts of my life too, in terms of just like having awareness of certain things and having language of, of my surroundings and, and really understanding like things that subconsciously are ingrained in me, you know, and, and then things that are ingrained in them. them. Right. And then things that are ingrained in them. And and of course, that comes to this idea of white privilege. So I wanted to ask you, because I think about this a lot. I'm older than you. And obviously, I've been married to my husband, who's African-American. And we understand in kind of the racial construct of this country that Asians are almost white. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> and that we are seated at many tables this year. We realize that may not be the case, but that there is a sense of and I think in the African-American community, there's always been that that sense as well, that we get to sit at many tables, even though we are people of color. So mm-hmm. have you given that a lot of thought as you navigate the world? Because I think about that a lot. All the time. I think it's really interesting in the last year in particular, our country's gone through so much racial reckoning. It's always been persistent in different ways, but to have a conversation about internalized racism and racism within the systems, you have to look at colorism and you have to look at some like factors that came into the assimilation process with the Mm -hmm. API community in terms of wanting to be reach for that whiteness. You see it in all communities of color, right? Like where where folks are lighter skinned, right? They're, you know, they have more privilege. Like it's so nuanced, but I think, you know, particularly within the Asian community, because there's this assimilation factor, one of the questions I've often asked myself is, oh, did I internalize this moment because I was just simply trying to survive to fit in because I was the only person of color in this room? I think, to be honest, it's a continual conversation that I have with myself as I look back, like at my time, particularly when I was growing up in Texas. So you said that your parents were uh, refugees from the Vietnam War. And I wanted to ask you about sort of generational, but also family trauma. And how sometimes that kind of trauma can be passed down generationally. So do you feel like the traumas that your parents experienced during the war and surviving it and then becoming refugees, did you ever get a sense of their traumas in some ways internalized but passed on to you? Yeah, absolutely. I feel really lucky about is that like my parents have been very open about their experience, right? And have gotten more and more open as they've gotten older to share their experience and even name it as trauma, which I think being from an older generation, I was surprised to hear my mom like say that recently. But like in terms of what's been passed down, I think a perfect example is like when the pandemic hit, I went into like snap survival mode, like without any sort of hesitation or anxiety. I I just kind of knew what to do. And I think that was always something that I learned from my parents because they 
lost everything. Like right. they got lit- quite literally, like they were eating dinner and the Viet Cong took away their tables at gunpoint. So my parents have always kind of been in this like emergency preparation <laughs> mode, <laughs> right? For better or worse. And it was funny because when the pandemic happened, I called them and my parents are like, cool as cucumbers. I think it shows up in different ways too. Like one of the things I, I I want so so much for my mom is for her to find some peace and serenity, but she still is very much like that trauma lives with her every single day. The ironic part is that she's constantly anxious every single day, unless except in an emergency where she's very level. I think for me, it's just been unlearning that and knowing that I can be okay and trusting that I can be okay and not worry about the safety of my home body every single second of the day. Do you know how your parents ended up in Texas of all places? Yeah. (laughs) No, I mean, no, no, no. I asked this. This is like a really, it's a funny theme with Asian Americans, right? Like my father found his way to this suburban town outside Philadelphia. So I was just curious to see what it was about Texas that became your parents' decision to make that their home very similar to like other immigrant communities. My parents first immigrated to to Miami, actually. My mom's like one of 13 kids. So that's where her family was. And then I think my grandma and one of my aunts was like, Houston's really thriving. And my mom was like, yeah, I want to be close to my family. What I will say is that even though I grew up in Katy, Texas, Houston does have the second largest Vietnamese population, but we my family in particularly lived very far away from that for whatever reason, because I think it was just cheaper where we mm-hmm. were, right? And more affordable. And it's like hot and humid, right? So the weather right. was like kind of similar-ish. Yeah, it is interesting how the Vietnamese population to kind of grow in Texas. I always knew that and was curious. I, I, I wondered what that migration pattern with the draw of it was. And I would love to study that from just kind of an ethnographic standpoint. So now having come out, identifying yourself as queer, and then going through this past year where, like you said, we had a racial reckoning, but I also felt like it was a reckoning for Asian Americans to wake up, right? I think for so long, we've been lulled into thinking that, oh, as again, in the racial construct, we're nearly white. We get to sit at many tables, right? There were days days where I never thought about my ethnicity or race or Mm. what I look like. How has all of that kind of perhaps shaped the way you think about things or possibly even approaching projects in your future? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, I make a much more conscious I don't know if you experienced this, Juliana, but after the Atlanta shootings happened, like everyone and their mom like randomly texted me. Yes. <laughs> like I was, <laughs> and I was like to the point where I was, I haven't talked to you in like eight years. <laughs> I don't even know how you have my phone number. I, I think I gained a, a deeper sort of level of empathy for African American and Black experience that I think knew intellectually, but hadn't really embodied or felt emotionally in any sort of way like that. And I also think this last year, because there's been such a huge reckoning too of like, just naming things whenever they happen. Like I, I certainly have grown a lot more balls being able to call people out, particularly white people in terms of like them not 
I've walked out of meetings at this point. I think my my boundary has become a lot more clear and I'm a lot more strong at holding it when it comes to dis- discussions about race and just like not putting up with it, right? And just mm-hmm. like going. Can you talk about your project, Ganesh? We're a community organization and really we look at internalized bias through this mindfulness lens, right? I originally started it because... I was searching for <laughs> yoga and, and meditation spaces that were more tailored for people of color, for the queer community. I know you being in New York and being a teacher for so long, Juliana, like sometimes it was just like one night a month if you were lucky, right? right. And, so yes. Like, yes. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, well, I'm Asian all the time. So right. Like, right. so we started holding these community gatherings and what we really started finding people wanted to practice together, but then people also wanted to have these sort of very deeper conversations around these constructs around identity and how it's really defined our worthiness and and then in, in how can we create a relationship to it so that way we can actually feel empowered. I think it's been a combination of taking these practices and, and working with a whole bunch of different teachers from different lineages and traditions and us like working on our own stuff, right? And, and figuring out where our blind spots are and, and expanding our own awareness of, of our consciousness and then really seeing how we can show up as allies and in, in having conversations like these that you and I are having right now, like and right. asking these tough questions because like most people don't like, Hmm, why have you always been with a white partner, right? Like, that's like a tough thing that I think is so important to like ask those questions so that way folks can be living consciously in the world every day. I feel like you and I need to do another show about your project because I think that that conversation is one that deserves another full episode about sort of the lack of diversity in the yoga community, in the yoga world. And what that feels like when, you know, the whole idea of yoga is about self-acceptance, but then everywhere around you, you don't see yourself reflected, right? Totally, a hundred percent. And right. Like, and that message I, of like, oh, but your self-acceptance is different because none of your self is ever reflected in any of these rooms. A thousand percent. And it's one of the reasons why I feel so grateful that I found you so early on in my practice. Quite honestly, it was so lovely and wonderful to find someone who looked like me, who shared similar experiences like me that could be so inviting and welcome to this very new thing to me, so, right? From, like, yeah, but from the flip side, I was like, oh my God, there's an Asian student in the room. <laughs> <laughs> How exciting is that? So probably <laughs> I paid extra attention to you. you well, I did feel very loved. I did. I was like, I was like, oh, she's giving me so many hands on I love it. So no, but I did. You, you didn't know? understand how exciting that was for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally, I totally hear you. I that makes me laugh. I'm still very grateful for all of that time, and and just want to say it again on the record here that I'm I'm, I'm so grateful for you, and and I want to thank you for that. 
Oh, so that's a great place to end. Um, but I do want to have you to come back. <laughs> no, that, that is a great place to end to have you come back to talk about that other topic about yoga and diversity. But yeah. I get to ask one last question. And of this course, question is a little out of left field, but it's a way for people to get a different contextual sense of you. So if there's one song that you could pick that either resonates with you or feels as if is like your life story, what would that song be? Okay, so I'm going to say something because we can always change our answer later. And my partner is going to be mortified. But I'm currently obsessed with this song from The Greatest Showman. (laughs) (laughs) But there's a song, This Is Me, which I think is like so perfect. And it's just a very empowering song and a good dance song. And it just really is talking about self-acceptance and stepping into the world and, and knowing you're enough. Right. So that's my, that's my answer today. Well, Kim, thank you so much. I adore you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience when I got tired of waiting. Then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they gon' ask me why I do it, I'ma say this because. We gon' be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack. Focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, would have. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. If you think you have a Phoenix Tale, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.